The scripture this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 18 to 27. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, they must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there was a widow. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no children. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scripture or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Thank you also, Peggy, for reading. Good morning. My name is Brent, and I have the honor of serving as Director of Service and Outreach uh, here at Stonebridge Church, and it's a privilege to be able to come and preach on God's Word today. And we are still in the middle of a series that we are doing on the book of Mark, which we're calling King's Cross. And the first half of the book is focused on his kingship, Lord Jesus' kingship. Second half is the cross, and we are very much into the cross portion right now. In fact, the passage that was just read took place on Tuesday of Holy Week. And so Good Friday is just around the corner from what was just read today. A little bit more background really quickly. Jesus had already entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. His arrival was not unexpected. There was lots of pomp and circumstance. And his popularity was rising among many of the people. They had heard of his miracles. They had heard his teaching. And this did not sit well with the ruling authorities, as he was often critical of them. In fact, the day before this passage, he had gone into the temple and had overturned the money changers' tables and had called them all a den of robbers. I don't think that endeared him to them at all. So here Jesus is, having just dealt with the Herodians and the Pharisees last week regarding taxes, and they failed miserably, uh, so they tapped out and tagged the Sadducees, And they come at Jesus with this question about marriage that we just heard. Now, a couple things about the Sadducees. Uh, One thing bears noting is that they did not believe in the resurrection, as the passage just said. They believe that when you die, body and soul just vanish. Uh, Secondly, they particularly gave authority to the first five books of the Old Testament. That's where they got most of their authority. And uh, it's also a good bet that they had the most to lose from Jesus' popularity, because they were in the majority in the Sanhedrin, or the ruling body, at that time, and enjoyed um, great favor as well as material um, success because of their position. And so Jesus' criticism of the temple authorities affected both their influence and their livelihood. So the Sadducees come to trip up and mock Jesus with this seemingly odd question about marriage. And it's part of the Jewish civil law. It comes from Deuteronomy 25, which is one of the first five books, so not surprising they use that. And it was there to protect widows and families in general from destitution that would happen when a woman was widowed. 
Um, so it's this obscure civil law uh, that they are talking about. Now that obscure civil law has very little important for us this morning, but the rest of the passage is very, very important. So what is Jesus teaching here? First of all, we see that he teaches that marriage is not everlasting. He says in verse 25, there will be no marriage in heaven. And uh, you'll also notice too that he talks about we'll be like the angels in heaven. Note that he's talking there about the fact that we, like the angels, will not marry. He is not in context saying that we will be like angels in any other way. So that's good to to get out of the way and make sure we understand. So there's no marriage in heaven. This is a rather blunt statement, I think, from Jesus here, and I don't want to gloss over it. So I want to take a look for a second at what Jesus' statement does mean and what his statement does not mean. So first of all, what does it mean? What it means is that in the new heavens and the new earth, when we're with Jesus, we're with him face to face, marriage will no longer be needed. Why? Well, because we will have all that we need in him. Remember, the institution of marriage began with God's observation in the garden that man was lonely. But when we're hanging out with Jesus in person, you can't be lonely. (laughs) It's impossible. So that won't be the case on the other side. There's also no need to be fruitful and multiply. That probably goes without saying. Another important reason for marriage that will no longer be needed. It's also vital to say that marriage was never meant to be an essential to a fulfilled life on this side of eternity. Paul spoke about a call to singleness for some that was very much ordained by God so that we would be wrong then this morning to speak of marriage as the ideal or the only acceptable state for people on this side of eternity. Now, one of the many problems with these religious authorities was that they assumed that things here and now will go on the same as they will in the new heavens and the new earth. Rick put it really well a couple weeks ago when we were preparing for this worship service and said it like this, resurrection is very different from resuscitation. Life on the other side is a whole new way of being. It's a new heavens and a new earth that awaits us. It's not going to be like things are today. Now, if you're in a good marriage this morning, it may be particularly troubling to read that you won't be married to your spouse in heaven. As great as the intimacy and the fulfillment can be in a good marriage here and now, it cannot compare to the real intimacy and the real fulfillment that being face-to-face with Jesus will bring. It's like an adult trying to explain to a four-year-old what we do at work every day. And as hard as you try to explain it, and as hard as they try to understand They just can't. They just don't get it. It's like that for life after death with Jesus. We can try to imagine how joyous and amazing it will be, but that's all we can do is try. Now, if your spouse is in Christ, they will be there. (laughs) And I would venture to say that your relationship with him or her will probably be better there than it will here. A holy and divine and perfect love will be both given and received by all who are with Christ in heaven, your spouse and everyone else. This is what we have in front of us. And so this is what Jesus' statement does imply. Now, what it doesn't imply 
is that marriage here and now is unimportant. Remember, marriage was instituted in the beginning, before the fall. And it was for more than procreation and companionship. Marriage is an important picture that points both single people and married people to the ultimate relationship for which we were designed, and that is Jesus as the bridegroom and we the church as his bride. If you're married and in a good marriage or you were in a good marriage, it's a partial picture that ultimately helps us to love and trust God himself. Mark Dever says that marriage helps us to do four things. It helps us to love another person. It helps teach us to be loved. Thirdly, it helps us to understand ourselves and all these things together. Fourthly, helps us to know God. He goes on, marriage points to everlasting things, but marriage itself is not everlasting. Have you ever thought about your marriage as something like that if you're married? That it's something that God uses to point us and other people to Him? It's true. And if you're married, I want to encourage you to take some time this week to think and talk about that with your spouse. But even as, as the institution of marriage can be so good, it too has been tarnished by the fall. And don't be fooled, every marriage in here is imperfect. And if you're in a particularly difficult marriage this morning, please know that you're not alone. Yes, it will be a relief knowing that what you're enduring now will no longer be at the resurrection. But know too that the misery that you may be experiencing is not God's design for marriage. And when both spouses submit to his headship, then an unhealthy marriage can become healthy. We're often encouraged as pastors to preach the announcements, because that's what I want to do right now. We have a focus class coming up starting today, second hour, called Loving God's Ragdolls. You can read a little bit more about it right there. It's going to be talking about relationships, marriage, friends, all the relationships that we have. And so, unless your marriage is just like 10 out of 10, I would strongly encourage you to, to Consider going to the focus class right there in the fellowship hall, right across from here after the sermon today. Now, if you have a good marriage, and the fact that you won't be married in the new heavens and the new earth is particularly troubling to you, ask God if maybe you're getting your identity from your spouse instead of from him. We need to remember that he's the one who bought us and made us his own. Now, if you've never been married or you're widowed or divorced and you wish that you were married, you need to be aware, too, that it's easy to idolize marriage. We need to remember that our hope is in Christ. Jesus is the key, not any person. We have only one everlasting calling, and that is to follow Jesus Christ. And let us pray that God will stoke our love for our first love, His Son, Jesus. So marriage is not everlasting, but it does point to everlasting things. The second point Jesus is making here is this. The resurrection is real. Resurrection is real. We just read a second ago, or just heard a second ago. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Now, do the Old Testament scriptures teach on the resurrection? Absolutely. There are verses all over the place, Daniel, Isaiah, Job, um, and elsewhere. But 
Because the Sadducees only really accepted the authority of the first five books of the Bible, Jesus goes to one of those books, the book of Exodus, and chapter 3 for his rebuttal. And uh, this is taking place in the desert. You may remember, if, if you know the Old Testament scriptures, Moses is out there in the desert, and the Lord appears in the burning bush. Moses approaches the bush, and the Lord speaks, saying, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, commentators have a number of different takes on how Jesus is here um, teaching on the resurrection through these verses. The most common interpretation is that uh, because he's saying, I am the God of these people, uh, that, he's, that they are living and still alive, instead of saying, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the most common, but a really cool perspective that I came across was from a scholar named Steve Wilmhurst, and I think it bears mentioning uh, this morning. He writes here about how God invokes the name of the names of the patriarchs um, here, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as reminding Moses of the promises and the covenants that he made with them. Here, the Israelites in Moses' time are in a great predicament, that of slavery in Egypt. And so he brings up the name of the, the patriarchs in a sense of saying, just as I was the rescuer and protector of these men, so I will be your rescuer and your protector right now. I made a covenant with these people. I gave them promises. And so looked after them every year, and I will do just the same for you, Moses. That's what God is saying here. In every trial, every struggle, God will be there. But how much is that promise really worth? After all, the trials of this life are but a faint, faint shadow of the greatest trial, the greatest enemy that we all face, and that of death. What kind of God would he be if when we arrived at this one supreme trial, he said, oh, <laughs> sorry, can't help you there? He'd be the God of the dead. He would have broken his promises to be faithful to his people. So when God says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, it has to mean I was faithful to them all the way through life and into death. They're not just ancient history or honored memories of God. Their story goes on. And God's saying here to Moses, I will be the same for you in life and in death. Wilmshurst closes like this. He says, this is the Lord's certain promise of resurrection. Today, as he is our God too, he will be the same for us in life and in death, through the trials of this life and through the greatest trial of all, which lies at life's end. There is a resurrection. There is a hope because our God is faithful, because he does not drop us at the toughest times. He is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. Amen? Amen. Now, it must have been a good answer uh, because Scripture does not record the Pharisees, or excuse me, the Sadducees saying anything. <laughs> in fact, um, in Matthew's gospel, it records that the people were astonished at Jesus' answer. So if you're not a Christian here this morning, I want you to realize that there is more than this life has to offer. We're made for something so much more than the here and now. 
That explains the longing in our hearts, the, the echoes of our Creator calling us to our true purpose. Noted 20th century atheist Albert Camus lamented in his novel, The Fall, speaking through this character in this novel, who said, Because I longed for eternal life, I went to bed with harlots and drank for nights on end. I slept in bliss, but awoke with the bitter taste of the mortal state. Now, if you believe there's a resurrection, it should make a difference in your life. In fact, if you really want to know what makes somebody tick, find out what they think happens after death. It affects everything. Who we marry, what career we decide on, how we spend our money, our time, all these different things. What defines us as Christians is the resurrection. What we do here on Sunday morning is a waste of time if Jesus was not raised in the de- from the dead and if we will not someday be raised with him. Mark is giving us two radically different views on the meaning of life. If the things of this life are what give you meaning and purpose, you will never be satisfied because God created us for something so much more. The cruelty and suffering of this life can be difficult, but the resurrection gives us hope and a purpose. So we need to put our hope in Him and what He promises will be true. Now, that definitely doesn't mean that our current life is devoid of any kind of meaning. We don't want to be so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good, as is so often said. In fact, it says in Scripture, you may have heard this in, in Matthew 5, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Christians, we have a purpose, a place in God's story, and He uses us for His purposes. Our lives are part of God's plan to make Himself known, to reflect the new earth while we are still here on this one. An illustration that I came across in my studies was somebody says that we are like model homes as Christians. See, a model home gives somebody the idea of what that big, open, vacant space around it is eventually going to look like. Brothers and sisters, the greatest apologetic for the resurrection is God's people living in community together, loving one another as Christ loved us, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. When they see us as a model home, when they see us as a, as a glimpse of the resurrection, they will say, oh, <laughs> so that's what it looks like. Oh, that's what love and justice is like. So when they talk about heaven, that, that's a little taste of it. So when, when people see that, they see that Jesus is alive, and they get a little taste of what the resurrection will be like. That's what God's been about in history, something far bigger than we often think about, making himself known and glorifying himself, pointing us toward him. So I want you to talk about that today with your family, with your friends, maybe after the service today. What living for eternity will mean practically for you and for me in the new year? So marriage points to everlasting things, but itself is not everlasting. The resurrection is real, and the last point Jesus makes is this. Jesus is the true teacher. He says in verse 24 to the Sadducees, Are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? See, Jesus, not the Sadducees, teaches the truth on marriage. Jesus, not the Sadducees, teaches the truth on the resurrection. Jesus is the one who teaches the truth. Jesus 
God's word is what teaches the truth, not the world, on whatever subject you can possibly think of. Now, the, the focus of this passage seems to be marriage, but eventually it gets down to the real point. The real meat of this passage is this. Who is the true teacher? Who's the true authority? Which guide is the most reliable? And the answer is it's Jesus. He's the one who's teaching the truth. And the people who are listening to this are learning that Jesus is the one that they need to listen to. And so throughout his ministry, he takes these crooked practices of what the religion, the Jewish religion had become. And he takes these crooked practices and, that are brought to him and he refurbishes the, relation, excuse me, the revelation of God in the scriptures and they all point to him. There are so many present-day Sadducees. <laughs> if there is disagreement between Jesus and anyone else, we go with Jesus. <laughs> God has committed the clearest revelation to himself, of himself, not to changing people like me, but to the unchanging word of God. Read and meditate on God's word. That's the unchanging authority, and there is no better New Year's resolution than that. Two ways that you can flesh that out this morning, if you want to do that as a New Year's resolution. First of all, get a plan to read through the Bible. I have here in my hands a two-year Bible reading plan. This too can be yours if you walk out the doors in the back and to your right you'll see them on a table. Take one of these. Begin to read and meditate on God's word. That's where the truth can be found. Secondly, make a practice of studying the passage that's going to be preached the coming Sunday. If you're taking notes, next week it's Mark 12, 28-34. That's next week's passage. I would encourage you to study and meditate on that before the sermon next week. And please also pray for your church. Pray for Stonebridge. Pray that unlike first century Israel, the Lord would prevent us from recognizing elders and leaders only because of worldly respect like the Sadducees. Pray that we would teach and preach the word faithfully. We desperately covet your prayers. Jesus teaches the truth about marriage, about the life to come, and about everything else. What Jesus taught here about the resurrection on Tuesday, he believed on Friday when he went to the cross and he experienced as he was raised on Easter Sunday to glory. For the joy set before him, the Bible says, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He endured the cross so you and I would not have to. If you don't know what would happen to you if you died today, please come talk to me. Talk to somebody you know who's a Christian. Don't leave here today wondering what would happen. You can know for certain that you'll be with Jesus if you believe and submit to him. Jesus was raised again from the, day, the dead, and that is why we are here. So here and now we have sorrows and divisions, pain, woe, and death. But we look ahead for that day, for that true fulfillment. That hope is why we gather today and it's why we live every day that God gives us for his glory alone. Let us pray. Glory to you, God the Father, who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ and crowned him with glory and honor. Glory to God the Son, who lives to plead our cause at the right hand of God. 
and who will come again to make all things new. Glory to God the Holy Spirit, who brings us the taste of the good word of God and the power of the age to come. Praise and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor, power and might be to our Lord forever. God, prepare our hearts now for the fruit of your son's sacrifice as we partake in Holy Communion. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.